Well, amen. Let's look in uh, Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 16. I want to share a message entitled, Facing the Test. I just know how everybody likes to take tests. Amen. I know our students always rejoice when they find out they're going to have a test. But facing the test, and God puts Israel to the test, and I think there's some practical things that we can learn uh, about our Christian life and how to face the trials and tests in our life. Out of Judges chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, uh, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of the groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. And they ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died, that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein, as their fathers did uh, keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out in, uh, hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you. Uh, we are so grateful that we have the word of God to read from tonight. And we're so thankful, Lord, uh, for all the principles that we can learn through studying the word of God that will help us in living our life for the glory of the Lord. Uh, God, we understand that, that there's many trials, many tests, uh, many ways that we're proved of God. And uh, I just pray that we might be able to learn some practical truths tonight that will help us uh, to face the trials, face the tests in our life. And uh, Lord, I just pray if there's someone here tonight that's not sure they're saved, I pray they would come and receive Christ as their Savior. We are desiring to hear from you, Lord. And so speak, Lord, because we're listening to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text verse is verse 22. says that through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. So facing the test. Uh, when you study the history of Israel, you see Israel uh, had a character trait of constantly being plagued with a spirit of disobedience unto the Lord. They were rebellious to their God. God had done so much for them. Uh, his grace was extended to them over and over again. But yet they would rebel and uh, disobey the very commands of God. Joshua would lead the children of Israel 
into many great victories against the enemy as they would go across the Jordan River and go into the Canaan land. Uh, God would direct Joshua to lead the children of Israel in a path of victory. And, uh, but however, uh, when Joshua and Caleb are dead, there comes another generation, tells us in this chapter in verse 10, another generation which does not know God says, and also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Oftentimes when I read that verse, I think of Eli's sons. Eli was the priest of Israel, but it says Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, did not know the Lord. And it's an amazing thing to think of the fact that the priest of Israel's sons did not know the God of that priest. And here are the children of Israel, Joshua and Caleb, and that generation is gone. They have died, and as a result of it, now there's a generation that does not know God. And that's a dangerous thing to face, a dangerous thing to, uh, to have to deal with. Uh, but yet I'm afraid that we're seeing a generation developing that doesn't know who God is. Uh, they know about God. They may have some information about God. They may be confused about different aspects of what the church is or what the Christian life is, but they don't really have a knowledge and understanding completely of who Christ is. And so this creates a problem. God would try to deal with the problem in Israel with their lack of knowledge of knowing who he is by raising up judges. And he would raise up the judges to deliver Israel. That's what it says in verse 16 of Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 2. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And so God would raise up a judge. There would be one that would reign over Israel and direct Israel in all their dealings, and God would use that judge to bring a spirit of revival, and so the children of Israel might be able to experience victory in their life. Uh, the, however, the people of Israel just did not have a heart for revival. In uh, verse 17, it says, and they would not hearken unto the judges. And so how, how many times it just seems to get frustrating as a preacher to preach on very practical principles of what our Christian life should be and what our Christian life should look like, and yet people don't want to hear it. People don't want to respond to it. People don't want to live in accordance with it. And judges, God would raise up a judge that would reveal to the children of Israel what their life was supposed to be and what it was supposed to look like as they surrendered to their gods, but they just wouldn't hearken to it, wouldn't respond to it because they didn't have a heart for revival. The victories they would experience were due to the judge that was over them. It was not due to their spirituality, because verse 18 tells us, when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And so God would bring revival. God would bring deliverance. God would bring salvation to Israel. But it wasn't because of the people. It was because of the judge that God had raised up. But after the death of the judge, it says in verse 19, 
that after the death of the judge that the people uh, would move and corrupt themselves even more. Notice in verse uh, 19, it tells us, and it came to pass when the judge was dead, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. The interesting thing, there's a principle in the scripture if you study this matter of sin that comes in people's lives, that what happens as you sin and then you get right with God or God blesses and then you backslide and get away from the Lord, the corruption becomes more severe. The wickedness becomes more severe. Uh, the ability to get right with God becomes more severe. And so when the judge was dead, they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. How did he do it? It says, in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them, they cease not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. I mean, that verse 19 is a four-point message in itself in reference to what, is it, what does rebellion look like or what does backsliding look like. It looks like this matter of worshiping gods that are not the true God. It looks like bowing ourselves down and submitting to those gods rather than submitting to the God of heaven. It looks like those just taking and living according to their own choosing and their own doings. In other words, rather than obeying what God has said, they just decide this is how I'm going to live. And then, he says, from their stubborn way. So what happens is they become hard-hearted, they become cold-hearted, and you try to persuade them to get right with God and they don't want to hear anything at all. Boy, I'll tell you, that verse is a great summary of what it looks like to backslide. And so the people would corrupt themselves. The outcome was simply that God would not drive out the enemy. That brings us down to our text verse in verse 20 through 22. God said, okay, you don't want to listen to the judge. You don't want to repent. You don't want to get right with me. You don't want to worship. Uh, you don't want to be uh, submissive to my commands and my covenants with you. Then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to remove the wicked in your land. And it's hard for us to be... Um, desiring of God to remove the wickedness that is in our land if we won't get right ourselves. Uh, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Judgment begins in the house of God. It doesn't begin out there. It begins inside here. And if we're not willing to repent and we're not willing to face the trials that we're going to go through because of God refusing to remove the enemy from around us, uh, then we're going to fail the test. We won't be able to face the trial or face the test. So in verse 22 says that through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. So first of all, I see this on this matter of facing the test. We need to realize that the enemy is present. This morning I dealt with a point in my message, the enemy is real. But we can take it past that point and acknowledge that the enemy is present. And uh, in verse 22, he says that through them I may prove Israel. Who is that? Through the enemies, through the nations that were against Israel, through the nations that would surround Israel, through the nations that despised the God of Israel. God said, I'm not going to drive them out. I'm not going to remove them. But what's going to happen 
is Israel is going to have to deal with the enemy in their presence. And every, listen, every believer has to deal with the enemy in our presence because he is present. And so I thought of this, battling the flesh. Your flesh is ever present. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 7 of his trials and difficulties of dealing with his flesh. Romans chapter 7 and verse 18 Paul says, for I know that in me, and then he qualifies that statement. He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh. And oftentimes people want to live their life as a Christian and deny the reality of the influence of the flesh. Your spirit got saved. God's spirit witnesses to our spirit that we are the children of God. But your flesh didn't get saved. Your flesh is sold under sin. Your flesh has to go back to the dust of the ground where it came from because your flesh is wicked. And so Paul says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. I mentioned this morning when I was preaching at different times, I haven't had a, a drink of alcohol in 35 years, but yet the devil will bring that taste to my mouth in certain situations uh, I might be exposed as you're driving down. I think of one time I was going up here on 571, going out to get a sandwich for lunch, and a guy walked past me going across 571 carrying a six-pack of beer. And I let me tell you, that taste came right in my mouth. Why is that? Because I know that in me, that's in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. I mentioned that this morning. I had somebody come up and tell me. They said, you know what? I know exactly what you're talking about because I experienced the same thing. But I'm thankful that I can still confess that sin, that sinful lust that's in my heart to the Lord and God gives me victory over it. That's battling the flesh. The enemy is always present. Your flesh you live in is always there and you've got to deal with your flesh. And so he says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So I struggle with this whole concept of causing my body to do what is right, perform that which is good, because I constantly have this influence of doing that which is wrong. Verse 19 says, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. That's amazing. I've had people over the years say, well, I don't believe a person that is saved can sin. Well, Paul, certainly one of the great apostles who wrote two-thirds of uh, the uh, New Testament, said he understood very clearly that there was always evil with him, and because of that, there was sin. He said, sin dwelleth in me. Why? Was it in his spirit? Was it in his soul? No, it was in his flesh. And so the enemy is present because we have to battle the flesh. He says in verse 22, For I delight in the law of the Lord after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? Then he comes to his conclusion. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that when the mind, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but it, with the flesh the law of sin. 
Paul said there's a battle that rages constantly because the enemy is ever present. And you can't trust your flesh for one minute. You cannot, listen, you cannot let yourself get into a compromising situation and think that everything's going to be all right. Because you constantly put yourself in a compromising situation, your flesh will lead you to fall into sin and iniquity. And so the enemy is always present. Uh, that we need to realize there's not only the battling of the flesh, but the fighting of the devil. Now, we touched on this a little bit this morning, but in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, in uh, verse 10, tells us about this matter of fighting the devil. And uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not going to try to fight the devil in the flesh because he will defeat me, but I can fight the devil in the name of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's how you fight the devil. And that's how you fight the accuser of the brethren. That's how you fight the liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. You're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And he tells us why. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against rulers in darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know why there's problems in the church? Because there's problems in the church because the devil brings his authority, he brings his power, he brings his demons into the church to cause problems and to stir people up. And the people of God need to fight the devil. As I mentioned this morning, Dr. Malone was preaching, going to preach, and he felt the devil just oppressing him, discouraging him, uh, telling him how awful of a preacher he was and all that. And he just pulled over to the side of the road. He said, I had enough of it. Pulled off the side of the road, got out of my car, walked around, opened up the passenger door, and said, Devil, I've heard enough of this. You cannot do anything against me. Greater is, is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Get out of my car and leave me alone. He said he didn't have any problems after that. Sometimes you need to kick the devil out. Sometimes you need to kick the devil out of the church. Amen. Get him out. Uh, he doesn't need to be here. You say, well, how does he get here? Somebody brings him with him. We want you to bring visitors, but not that one. Amen. <laughs> Fighting the devil. He says in verse 13, he says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girded about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the sh uh, shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Notice he didn't say some, he said all. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, fighting the devil. Uh, we need to first of all acknowledge from this morning's message that the enemy is real. But secondly, tonight, we need to acknowledge that the enemy is present and need to fight against the devil, need to rebuke the devil in the name of Jesus. We need to overcome the world. Do you, you understand tonight that the world does not have one thing, not one thing, that is good for us? Not one thing. 
Because whatever the world has <coughs> is corrupt and against the commands of God. And so you say, well, wait a minute, computers are good. Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to tell you one thing right now. If you let that computer be out of control and you don't control it, that is not good for you. My wife showed me this little picture. <laughs> I had to laugh. And you be careful how you post things. So as I don't know if you ought to post that or not, but it showed this picture of this skeleton. And it's had on there, it had a statement that said, uh, well, uh, many years from now, archaeologists are going to be find, and digging and find this buried. And it was a skeleton with a cell phone in his hand like this. <laughs> you say, what well, has that got to do with anything? I don't know. I just thought about it. Amen. <laughs> Our cell phones are amazing tools that we can use to communicate one with another. But I'm going to tell you, if you allow that phone to dictate to you how you're going to respond based on the world's concept of what that phone is for, you got trouble. You allow your internet to control you and manipulate you based on what the world says that internet is for, uh, you're in trouble. The educational system uh, in America, the direction that it is going, if you allow that to dictate to you how you're going to raise your children, you're in trouble. Our politicians, if you're going to allow them to dictate how you're going to live and how you're going to uh, uh, confront issues in your life, you're in trouble. Why? Because we have to overcome the world. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 4, says, In this I say, lest any man should beguile you with, uh, with enticing words. I mean, they know how to debate. They know how to persuade. They know how to convince and, uh, their, but their argument is, has no foundation, and their argument is wrong. So you have to overcome the world. He says, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I, am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How do we receive the Lord? We trust him as our Savior by faith, believing that he is the Son of God, believing that he is the way, the truth, and the life, believing that he was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, and coming in again. That's how we overcome the world, by living in light of the reality of who Christ is. Verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. I'm not impressed with education. I like what Dr. Mil uh, Dr. Malone used to say years ago. He said, too many people are educated past the point of intelligence. <laughs> Be aware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and through vain deceit. The problem in America, our young people are going off to colleges that are full of philosophy that's wrong. And within the freshman year, by the time they finish their freshman year, they turn against everything they've been taught in their home for the last 18 years. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We're Christians. We're Christians. That means we follow Christ. We don't embrace and follow the things of the world. I remember years ago when... Uh, President Clinton was running for election, re-election. I remember I preached against him. I was down in Dividing Creek. I preached about it, and then I saw the statistics of how many Christians voted for him. And I thought, that's, that's a shame. It's a shame. 
We need to vote based on our Christian principles, not based on the rudiments of the world. And we, but we get drawn into it, and we wonder why the enemy is always present. We wonder why we're always having to deal with all these issues. We wonder why our issues are out of control in New Jersey. All this stuff that's going on and being passed right now in New Jersey, we say, how in the world can this happen? I'll tell you how. We did not make decisions based on the fact that we're Christians, and now we find ourselves in a mess. We need to overcome the world. We don't embrace the world. We don't become part of the world. We have to overcome the world. I thought about the enduring corrupt government. The enemy is present. The government is corrupt. The government does not have anything good for you. You know, I was the president uh, Reagan said the worst the words, the scariest words anybody could say from you, say to you is that I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> <coughs> government can't help you. God can help you. God can strengthen you. God can bless you. And Israelites were just continually bent on the fact of turning their back on their God. So the enemy is present. I see in our text verse another thing. Not only that the enemy is present. Uh, he said that through them I might prove Israel. God said I'm not going to drive them out. They're going to stay there because you won't obey me. So I'm going to prove. I'm going to give you a test. So the, the enemy is present. But the challenge is real. Notice he said this, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein. The challenge that God sets before us is a challenge or a test, if you will, in reference to, are you going to live for God or aren't you? I mean, when your coworkers start laughing and mocking and telling dirty jokes and all kinds of that, are you going to stand for Christ or are you going to go along with it? Your children, are you teaching your children when they go to school? I just read some things with the Christian Law Association. I think I might print them in the, in the bulletin for next year, next year, uh, next week. And uh, in reference to the rights of students in the public school to pray and do all this kind of stuff. But we'll allow the world, we'll allow the school system, we'll allow the political society to embarrass us and intimidate us and back us in the corner. And we won't meet the real challenge of saying, well, wait a minute. I have a right to believe what I believe and practice what I believe. The challenge is real. God said, I'm going to leave the nations in the, in the country against them, around them, because I want to see whether they're going to keep my way or not. The test is this. When, when the going gets tougher, are you going to stand for God? The test is this. When everyone else is turning their back on God, are you going to still stand for God? Notice, first of all, in Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19 is a good example of this, and uh, in reference to the nobleman's giving 10 pounds out to his servants. And notice there's a command in verse 13 of Luke chapter 19 and verse 13. And he says, He called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. That is the message that God has to us. We're to occupy until he comes. We're not supposed to be disconnected with what's going on around us. We're supposed to occupy the space and the opportunities that God has given us till he comes. So that's the command. Here's the conflict, however, in verse 14. <clears throat> but his citizens hated him. Well, that's a strong statement. 
the citizens, his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. You realize every time that you disobey the command that God gives you, you're stating and throwing it back into the face of God. I don't like what you told me to do. and I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to have this man reign over me. The challenge is real. God gives the command and it creates a conflict because you have to decide, am I going to submit to the command that God has given and to the one that he sent, who is Jesus Christ? Or am I going to ignore what he commands me to do? There's the counting. In verse 15, I won't read all these verses, but verse 15 came to pass that when he was returned, when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And when we read through, every man had a different investment and different return. And we know the bottom line is there was the one who did not have a return on what God had given him. So there is the counting. There is a day of accountability before God. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul says to give an account of the things that we have done in our body, whether it be good or bad. So there is the counting. And then there's the condemnation in verse 26. And he says, for I say unto, the, unto you, and to everyone that hath, hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. The real challenge is this, that God does give us commands to follow. I think it was Dr. Vanneman, Dr. Paul Vanneman, years ago said about the Bible, said this book is not a book of better ways. It's a book of commands. And we have lost that in 2020. We have lost that reality that this is a book of commands. These are not suggestions on how we're to live. And so uh, Israel had to acknowledge that the enemy was ever present because God would not drive them out because he was testing Israel to see whether they would obey him or not. And the challenge was real because, in fact, he wanted to see if they would keep the way of the Lord. And then I see in verse 22, the victory that is sure. And he said uh, in verse 22, as their fathers did keep it. In other words, he said, I want to see if you're going to respond to me the way your fathers responded. Are you going to keep what I've commanded you or are you going to just ignore it and refuse to keep it? There is victory that is sure when we obey, when we keep the commands that God gives us. And I thought of several things real quickly. Just Abraham's fulfilled promises. You read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 through 12. You see the promise of God to Abraham to give him a land to dwell in. Abraham received that lamb. He enjoyed that lamb. And God blessed him greatly. God pr promised him a child. And God would bless him when he was 100 years old. He gave him a child. Miraculous child. And so we see Abraham fulfilled the promises Abraham's fulfilled promises from God. And listen, what God promises to us, he can keep. And we can believe him and trust him and live in regards to what he has so stated. I thought about Jacob's life-changing encounter. Uh, you know, the, the first time that it, the name Israel is mentioned is in Genesis chapter 32 in uh, verse 28. 
And it says this is where uh, Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord all night. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince thou hast power with God and with men and hath prevailed. The name Jacob means supplanter or trickster. The word of uh, Israel means prince. And he said, you're a prince with God. His, his life was changed. He was never the same. Later on in his life, in Genesis 35, in verse 1, says, God said unto Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. He said, it's time to go back to Bethel. It's time to go back to the house of God. And I tell you, if there's something that needs to be learned in present day Christianity, and may I say, in our church members here at Ocean County Baptist Church, is to get back to the house of God. Get back to church. I see, man, I'll tell you, I've seen in the last two, three months, there's a lot of empty seats of people that, that should be here. They used to be here, but they're not here. And it's not because they left the church. They're just not going to church. You say, I want God's blessing. I want to have victory in my life. Then get back to Bethel. Notice in verse, I think that's good preaching. I'll email myself here in a minute. Verse 7 says, as he went back to Bethel, it says in verse 7, he built there an altar like God told him to do. What kind of altars are you building in your life? What kind of altar do you have personally to get along with God and meet with God? What kind of altar have you built for leading your family and family devotions? What kind of altar have you built? of directing people to be able to come into the presence of God. Jacob came back to Bethel and says he built an altar there, and he didn't call it Bethel. He called it El Bethel because there God appeared unto him when he had fled from his face of his brother. El is God. So it is God of the house of God. And when we talk about going back to the house of God, we are talking about going back and meeting with the God of the house of God. If you read your Bible and you don't get any impression of who God is, uh, you need to go back and read it again. It is not about learning about characters and peoples and events and all that. When we read the Bible, those characters and those events in the word of God is to help us to understand who God is. In verse 10, it says, And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob, thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And the amazing thing is this, Abraham experienced victory through fulfilled promises. Jacob experienced victory through a life-changing encounter with God. I, folks, I, I don't want to be satisfied uh, with just status quo as a Christian. I, I want to have an encounter with God. When I open up my Bible and read it, I want to be able to know that God is speaking to me. I remember Dr. Moon used to say years ago, men, when it comes to preaching, he said, you read the Bible until God blesses your soul, and then when God speaks to your heart, then preach on the overflow. I know there's topics that we need to address. I know there's topics and doctrinal issues we have to address and preach on 
But I'm going to tell you, my Sunday morning messages, my Sunday evening messages are based on just reading the scriptures and letting God speak to my heart. And then I preach on the overflow. Joseph's dependence, he had victory because of his dependence on God's providence. Chapter 50 of Genesis in verse 20 Joseph, as he's coming to the end of his life and uh, his brothers have been brought to Egypt, he's revealed to them uh, what they did in selling him and abusing him, selling him into the Midianite caravan. Joseph's conclusion in chapter 50 and verse 20, but as for you, you thought evil against me. And I'm going to tell you, there's people who think evil against you. There's people throughout your life who are going to think evil against you. There's been people that think evil against me. There's been people that think evil against this church. You're not going to escape that. He says, you thought it for evil against me. But here it is. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And God wants to give you victory based on your dependence on God's providence. Facing the trial, facing the test, going through the challenge that God gives us. Why? Because God wants us to see that he is providentially involved in and connected with our lives. I often say, people often ask me, how do you know what the will of God is? The first thing I say is this. You absolutely don't violate any biblical principle in reference to what you're going to do. Because God is never going to lead you to violate one principle in this book. The second thing is, is the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because it is the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 13 that said, Separate unto me Paul and Silas unto the work that I've called them to do. The prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then the third point is just simply this. The providence of God. Because God brings things to pass. And I've watched over the last 35 years, God providentially intervening in my life and changing circumstances to direct my life and my path to the place where he wanted me to be. And in that place is where the victory is. So victory is sure. Israel didn't understand that. I thought about Moses' staying against Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 12. I mean, Pharaoh argued with him, he debated with him, he refused his God, he discredited Moses' God. But I'm going to tell you, in the end, Moses stood strong with the Lord, and in the end, Pharaoh had to bend to the power of God. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 31, it says that he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, rise up and get you forth from among my people. Whoa, wait a minute, he was saying, you can't go. Now he's telling them, get out of here. And he says this, he says, In the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as ye have said. You know, I, I, don't, I don't like little dribbles from the world that says, okay, you can worship God however you want, as long as you stay in your church house, as long as you do this, and they try to regulate what you are. No, when we stand for God, we stand with God, then the world will bend its knee and have to acknowledge that God is the one who is sovereignly in control of all things. And we'll pray and we'll seek after God and we'll believe God and refuse to bend. 
Don't bend with the trends. Don't bend because your kids want to go with the world. Don't bend because people think you're crazy and you're a little bit fruity. Uh, that's okay. I'll tell you, when I got saved, my wife and I were called the Kool-Aid kids because of Jim Jones and the whole mass suicide that went down in Johannesburg and all that was going on back in those days when we got saved. Everybody looked at me like I was crazy. Everybody looked at my wife and I as we're involved in some type of a cult or something like that. And listen, over the years, we just made up our minds. We're not going to bend. I don't care what family member wants me to bend. I don't care what situation I'm in to bend. I'm not going to bend. I'm going to stand with God and everyone else will have to bend. Amen. Moses stood against Pharaoh to the point where Pharaoh said, all right, you go worship your God the way you want to. Get out of here. I've had enough. Get. And then I know in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 and 9, we have Joshua's great success. Israel did not have much success going into Canaan. They had minimal success. They could have had so much more if they obeyed what God had said. But in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. It's not picking it up for one service on Sundays. It's not trying to pick it up and find a verse that you can use against somebody. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Why? That thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. How can you know what you're supposed to be if you don't meditate on the word of God? You know, I've had, heard a lot of people over the years say things. Well, you know, the Bible says. <laughs> it doesn't say it at all. I'm like, I don't know what book you're reading, but it doesn't say that in the Bible. For then, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Victory that is sure. Israel, through the judges, needed to listen to the judge, but they constantly, from judge to judge to judge, when the judge was ruling, God's blessings flowed. But when the judge was dead, Israel again rebelled against their God. And as a result of it, they had to deal with the constant presence of the enemy. And because of it, they were facing challenges upon challenges in reference to whether they were going to stand for their God or not. And the victory they could experience would be in reference to following the example of their forefathers that had died because they obeyed their God and they needed to follow that example rather than raising up another generation which absolutely doesn't know God at all. Facing the test. The Christian life is a challenge. It is difficult. But wait a minute, we still are on the Lord's side and we're still living in victory. We can still have great uh, peace and excitement as a Christian. You know, I have never, in 35 years, I have never seen a person who claims to be a Christian that is happy and motivated for God who is trying to have it both ways. 
You can't have your foot in the door of the church and your foot in the door of the world at the same time and be able to enjoy it. You won't enjoy it. Why? Because the two are against each other. The two are opposite to each other. And so you can't have it both ways. If God be God, that's what Elisha said, how long halts you between two positions? If God be God, then worship and serve him. If Baal be God, then worship and serve him. How long halt you between two decisions, two opinions? And Israel had a problem constantly. They failed the test because they wouldn't choose God and God alone. Saints of God, I want to challenge you tonight. Don't be caught up between two opinions. If Jesus Christ is God and he's your Savior, then surrender your life to him. Live for him. Make him the master. He's the boss. Exalt him and elevate his name. And forget about trying to be a part of and be satisfied in the things of this world because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Facing the test. I want you to pass the test. I want to pass the test. So Lord, help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be together tonight. There's many trials, many difficulties we have to face. It's alarming. It really is alarming, Lord, to watch the trends that are in the world. Uh, how vile, how wicked, how gross, really, it's becoming. Help us to be pure vessels. Help us to be a peculiar people. Help us to be a people that are willing to face the challenges, being able to fight the enemy, be able to secure victory over and over again. So I pray for your blessing now upon us in this invitation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.